Now let's turn in the, your copy of God's Word to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The message will be from the last portion of the chapter, but I'll read the entire chapter for context. And this is the same Word of God that stands forever, fully authoritative. Let's listen. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. For though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope? or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Amen. You may be seated.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and your spirit and your church. We thank you for the gift of worship. We ask your blessing on this exposition of 1 Thessalonians. May it be really your thoughts. Help us to worship as we receive your word in the name of our unique and precious Redeemer, Jesus. Amen. So, dear brothers and sisters, we'll be continuing our look at 1 Thessalonians. You'll remember that this letter is from Paul and Silas and Timothy to a young and healthy church in Thessalonica that Christ had begun begun building only a few months previously during their second missionary journey. They wrote the letter probably while they were still in the second missionary journey, while they were in ministering in Corinth. They were there over a year, year and a half. The letter is full of joy, encouragement, and love for the saints in Thessalonica. Today we'll be looking at verses 13 to 20 of chapter 2, and the overall theme of this section is a continuation of the good relationship described in the first part of chapter 2, where the authors describe the Lord providing faithful ministers for his people, and the family aspect of the relationship of faithful ministers to the congregation, with ministers acting as good mothers and good fathers. So we just read that. Today the main thought of verses 13 through 20 is that the Lord preserves and protects the loving relationship between the ministers and the congregations despite hard opposition. As we look at this main thought, we will see three broad aspects of the Lord's preserving his church. First, we will see that the Lord uses the preaching of the gospel from his word to preserve and grow the church. Second, we will see that the church faces tough, hard opposition from the enemy. And third, we will see how the love in the church provides strength and encouragement to weather those storms. First, the main thought, uh, the Lord preserves and protects the loving relationship between ministers and the congregation, and we'll explore now that the Lord uses the preaching of the gospel from his word in the church. That's the focus of verse 13. Verse 13, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. Notice the authors are happy people. They are thanking God constantly. This is not an exceptional thing for Paul. Rather, it's the rule for Paul as he interacts with the churches that the Lord has established during his ministry. Paul exhorts believers to pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, later in this epistle, and he exemplifies that command here. He says, we also thank God constantly, without ceasing. Giving thanks to God is praying, right? It is. Thanksgiving is one aspect of prayer. When we prayed a few minutes ago, there was a time of thanksgiving. Our catechism says, prayer is 
an offering up of our desires, desires to God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. That's beautiful. Yes, giving thanks is praying. We see the same thing from Paul in other epistles he wrote. There are 13 of those, and in nine of them, there's explicit thanksgiving for the churches. We can reasonably assume that he's also thankful in the other four letters. He just didn't explicitly write it down. As the authors begin this thought, there's thanksgiving. We see two things about thanksgiving here. One is who they are thankful to. And the other is why they are thankful or what they are thankful for. In this instance, Paul is thankful to God, which is no surprise to us. Paul knows that God is the giver and the provider. And it is powerful to consider what Paul is thankful for in this verse. Paul and Silas and Timothy are saying that the Thessalonian church received the word of God. When the people received the word of God, they became believers, and as they gathered, they became the church that Jesus was building. The authors then are thankful that the church was formed. The authors knew that the Lord was responsible for the fact that the churches and the folks at Thessalonica responded with belief and reception of the word of God. So since it was the Lord's doing in the working of the person of the Holy Spirit, it is the Lord that is the one to be thanked. When we experience the public profession of faith of our covenant children becoming communicant members, we give thanks to God because God is responsible for the receiving of the word in these young people. So it is for the Thessalonian believers in this church. It's a joyful thing to see people receive the word. The thanksgiving with joy was due to the church receiving the word, but there's more here. There's a description of some aspects of receiving the word. First, the word of God was heard from Paul and Silas and Timothy. These men were ministering the word. They were speaking it out loud for people to hear. They had taken on the responsibility of ministering the word to the lost, and they did it. They were faithful in this responsibility. A familiar passage, Romans 10, 14, and 15, is helpful and relevant to this receiving the word, which was heard from Paul and Silas and Timothy. Do you know this passage, Romans 10? It says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How, as it is written, Oh, and how are they to preach unless they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So Paul and Silas and Timothy must have had beautiful feet. Paul in Romans 10 is quoting Isaiah 52, 7. Isaiah says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, 
who publishes salvation, who says to God, Zion, your God reigns. It's a great verse. Of course, the Bible's full of those. Of course, the meaning of the passage is that the faithful minister of the gospel, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, is a beautiful person in the sight of the Lord and in the eyes of the saints. And Paul and Silas and Timothy spoke the word of the Lord to the Thessalonians, and the Thessalonian church responded by receiving it. Now, the second aspect of receiving the word of God is they accepted it. The reception was certain. There was acceptance by the people. How does it happen that they received it? It happens not because these people are so intelligent or so insightful or they have such a strong background. No, it happens because these people are enlivened spiritually by the Holy Spirit. They are regenerated. Then being regenerated, they respond in faith and repentance and they accept the word of God. They receive it. And as they take it in, it transforms them into new creatures. You know that passage. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. The third aspect of receiving the word of God is that they did not take it as the word of men. They knew that this word, even though it was coming from the lips of men, was a supernatural word. It was a heavenly word. It was a spiritual word. They accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. The apostles' teaching was a word from God himself, delivered through the agency of man. This word that the people accepted and received was the word spoken by God himself through man. It's the same today. When our pastor preaches, we are to receive it as the word of God. Just like the Thessalonians received the word from Paul and Silas and Timothy. Really? Yes. It is true that Paul was an apostle with apostolic authority. And your pastor does not have authority quite like that. But your pastor has something similar. He has been called by God to minister the gospel. And he has also been called by the church who has recognized his gifts and his calling and his qualifications. The Lord has called him and has equipped him through the church. Your pastor is trained to preach the gospel, and he's a faithful minister of the word. You should receive his preaching as the word of God as long as he is accurate to the word. Just like with the preaching of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, the preaching of your pastor is accompanied by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit energizes and directs the preacher, whether an apostle or your pastor. And the Holy Spirit also works in the heart of the hearer, you. And he works with the word to make the preached word effective to change the heart and lives of the hearer. You are here today to have your heart and your life changed. That's not the only thing, but that's one thing. The Holy Spirit works with the word. The phrase, word and spirit, word and spirit, it's a great phrase. The Holy Spirit always 
stays within the constraints and teachings of the Bible. The Holy Spirit will never give any revelation that's contrary to Scripture. The Holy Spirit will take the Scripture read and the Scripture preached and make it take root in the heart and life of the believer. It's a great thing. And the occasion is the preached word accepted, received through the Spirit. Some further thoughts about the third aspect of this receiving, and that is the pointed statement that it's not the word of men, but the word of God. What it really is. This is probably the most startling phrase in this verse, not the word of men. That means that the preaching of these men was not a human activity. It was not mere human words and expressions and thoughts. The preaching of these men is supernatural. It's a spiritual, supernatural event. It is from God. Paul and Silas and Timothy are very explicit here. This is a strong statement in the scripture attesting to the divine nature of the preached word. It leaves no room for doubt. This verse is also a text that supports the divine inspiration of scripture, although its focus is on preaching. Preaching is not the word of men, but the word of God. That is, biblical preaching. This is a very serious matter to anyone considering leading worship. If preaching is to be the word of God, it had better be well prepared and well checked out for accuracy. That's why we have in our presbytery a candidates and credentials committee to ensure that as far as possible, the men licensed to preach and ordained to pastoral office are gifted, properly trained, and demonstrate the ability to preach Christ-centered, Bible-originated sermons. We want qualified men in the pulpits so that the congregations are given the rich meat of the word every week and are constantly pointing to Christ every week. Preaching is always preaching the gospel, the redeeming work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This reminds us again of the passage in Romans 10, 14, and 15 we just mentioned. And finally, the fourth aspect of this receiving is that the word is not just coming and going, it is working. This to me is a very encouraging phrase. The word is, is at work in you believers. What is that work that the word is doing? You see these uh, signs when you're driving down the road, men at work. Okay, so this sign is word at work. This is the word at work. The word is changing us. The word is sanctifying us. The word is being used by the spirit, word and spirit, to cause us to grow in Christ. The word keeps calling us to renew our faith and renew our repentance. Faith and repentance are continuous acts in the life of the believer. Faith and repentance are not one-time events, constantly reinforced aspects of the Christian life. Do you remember the passage in Isaiah 55, 10 and 11? It's relevant here. It says, 
For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. We can bank on that. God's word will accomplish his purposes, whether to save or to condemn. And in this case, the purpose of God for his word in the ears of the church in Thessalonica is for it to save. The word saves his people. Of course, it is Christ who saves these people, but they learn of Christ from the word of God. And the word and spirit do a mighty life-changing work in the lives of all believers all the time. They work. They sanctify the believer. The believer grows. They do this work every day and every believer, just as sure as the sun comes up in the morning. Word and spirit produce fruit in the life of the believer. It's at work right now, right here. This is an amazing verse, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, as it talks about receiving the word of God. The word works in the life of the believer. Now let's look at verses 14 to 16, the severe opposition to the gospel. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. In the second section, we see a vivid description of the intense opposition of the enemy. In these verses, we see that there is an imitation going on, an example pattern described, uh, and it's similar to what happened back in verse chapter 1. But the imitation described here is uncomfortable. Notice that the church is imitating the suffering believers in Judea, where the church originated. Do you remember what Jesus was saying to his disciples in Acts 1.8? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The start is Jerusalem and all Judea, like we're seeing in these verses. The march of the progress of the gospel was going and is continuing today. But the point the authors are making is that the churches in Judea were suffering persecution from their countrymen and the same thing was happening to the Thessalonians. There were many people that hated Christianity, that hated the church, that wanted to destroy it because the Christian faith was a threat to their worldview and to their way of life. These are the people that the authors are talking about in these verses. Enemies of the church. They were at first among the Jews, but now in Thessalonica they're among their neighbors, whether Jew or Gentiles. The enemies of the church are vicious and ruthless. Look in verse 15 what the Jewish enemies of the church did. They first killed the Lord Jesus. They were single-mindedly set on ending this religion of Christianity by killing Christ. But of course that strategy failed miserably. They did kill Christ. But they were not prepared for the victory of the resurrection and the subsequent further spread of the gospel. 
The resurrection is a key for us all. That's where our hope is. The Lord Jesus was building his church inexorably. Even when he ascended to his Father, he continued to build his church by means of his Holy Spirit that he first sent at Pentecost. The authors continue saying, and the prophets, reminding us of Jesus' accusation of his Jewish enemies as he reminded them that they killed the prophets. They may have had in mind like the disciple James and the first martyr Stephen and others unnamed that were killed, but likely the authors have the prophets in the Old Testament in mind. Jesus gave a scathing rebuke to the Jewish opposition in Matthew 23 with woe after woe. Listen to the words of rebuke against the scribes and Pharisees in verses 29 to 36 of Matthew 23, the seventh of his seven woes, Jesus pronounces. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come on this generation. Of course, you can see some of those things fulfilled in the life of Paul, his missionary journeys. In addition to killing the Lord Jesus and the prophets, the enemies also drove Paul and his companions out. Paul may be remembering the shameful treatment in Philippi and the ejection from Thessalonica and Berea, but it may also have his flight from Jerusalem in mind. The authors go further to describe that these enemies displease God. Maybe the enemies don't care, but this is a severe criticism. To be on the displeased side of God is a scary place to be. May we never hear such a thing about ourselves. But the description gets worse and broader. It started terribly with the murder of Jesus and then the prophets and the mistreatment of the authors. But worse and more broadly, this enemy opposes all mankind by hindering the authors from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved. This is opposition to the gospel. And notice that opposition to the gospel is considered to be an act against mankind. Because that's what mankind needs. <clears throat> More than anything else, the crying need of mankind is the gospel. The only hope for any person. The results against the campaign against... Uh, uh, the results of the campaign against the gospel is that the enemies are filling up the measure of their sins and incurring the wrath of God. The statement, wrath has come upon them at last, does not describe specific acts, but the take-home message for us is that the actions and the evil campaign of the enemies of the cross have their consequences in the wrath of God. It is always reassuring to hear from the word that justice will be done. We know 
that God is powerful and wise. He is also righteous and holy and will by no means clear the guilty. As we're looking at these verses, remember that the main message today is that the Lord preserves and protects the loving relationship between the ministers and the congregation through hard opposition. And remember that first, he uses the preaching of the word in the church, and second, the intense opposition of the enemy. Now let's look at the third aspect of the loving relationship in 17 through 20. In this section, we see that absence from a beloved congregation is uncomfortable, but the love remains strong. Let's read this. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Notice that the authors see the separation from the Thessalonian church as a violent act. They were torn away. In verse 17, they say for a short time. And this indicates that it's not been that long since they left Thessalonica for Berea. So maybe he had not been in Corinth for very long when he wrote this letter. The phrase in person, not in heart, is another statement reinforcing the love between the authors and the church that has been such a prominent theme throughout this letter. They love this church. And the expression gets more intense. Look at the energy and the desire in this expression. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Paul really wanted to get back to that church. He tried over and over. He tried his hardest, more eagerly, with great desire. Look at how Paul and his friends loved that church. Now here, the hindrance of Satan is something we should take note of. Satan put roadblocks in the way of our Christian life. He tries to frustrate us in our Christian walk. He is our adversary. He frustrates our good intentions. He is like the folks in verses 14 and 16 that are attacking the church. As a matter of fact, they are serving Satan in their work. But Satan also works to distract, to delay, to disrupt. But Paul, though prevented from visiting Thessalonica, was able to communicate very effectively through this letter. And it is better that Paul couldn't visit because now we have a letter he was forced to write instead of visiting. And look what good the letter is to us. Paul and Silas and Timothy go on in verses 19 and 20 to consider the return of Jesus Christ. Remember that at the end of chapter 1 in verse 10, there was that focus as well as they described the Thessalonian church as waiting Remember, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now in chapter 2, the authors are talking again about the Lord Jesus at his coming. They have that focus again. And it happens again in, verse, in chapter 4 and in chapter 5 and in Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2. It's always looking forward to the return of Christ. Notice the authors are aware that there will be accountability. There will be a conversation with the Lord 
and the attitude of the authors about the return has hope and joy and even a crown of boasting. Remember, their boasting is in the Lord. They are looking forward to the return of Christ, and that anticipation is related to the church in Thessalonica. That church is a basis for the hope and joy and crown of boasting. It seems as if the authors wish to introduce the church to the Lord, to enter into rich fellowship, the Lord, his church, and his ministers, rejoicing in salvation, joy. Look at the blunt and happy last statement. You are our glory and joy. What a statement. The authors are made happy and are made content, knowing of the church in Thessalonica. Their lives are much enriched by the relationship with that church. It is so with us as well. Our lives are enriched by our relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ, in the brotherhood of the saints in our congregation. We are in Christ together. We are all together in our faith and repentance. We have all engaged our hearts with the Lord Jesus, believing in him and trusting him for his redeeming work. He who lived a perfect life and died an unjust death and rose again for us. We are all working together to spread the gospel, expanding God's kingdom on earth. We love the Lord Jesus and we love each other. May that love grow. May we learn more and more how to be a joy to each other and an encouragement to each other. May we be built up by the Spirit of Christ into unity and peace. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving your word, for it to teach us and grow us. We thank you for 1 Thessalonians. We pray that your precious spirit will show us how to apply this passage we have considered today so that we can be the salt of the earth. Amen.